Well, I think my very favorite question in going into a, an organization or a company to teach is, how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to do your job well? And you know, I can remember kind of um, early-ish pandemic, talking to a, a physician who was running a large medical practice in a hospital. And he said, you know who I have a new appreciation for? The cleaning staff. Mm. I thought, well, yeah, you know. And it's so interesting because almost always when I ask that question, people kind of go, oh, I just haven't been paying attention. Right. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast, and we're here today with the Real Life series, episode 215 of the Meta Hour. Sharon is sitting down with the wonderful Courtney Martin for a conversation about expansion and the challenges and the rewards of working for the common good. This conversation is part of the Living an Authentic Life Summit, which was held a few months ago, a summit all centered around themes from Sharon's new book, Real Life. And if you don't know Courtney, She is an author, she's an activist, she has a number of books. Most recent is Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. She's got a popular newsletter called Examined Family, and she's the co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, Fresh Speakers, and the Bay Area chapter of Integrated Schools. She's a frequent writer for the New York Times and On Being. So this conversation is really her story as a journalist, an activist, how she came to those lineages, and a lot of themes of expansion, connection. She shares about co-housing and resilience. And anyone who's contemplating how to improve the systems in our lives, our families, our communities, the reinvention of the American dream, and what it means to truly work for the common good. It's a wonderful conversation, and we're continuing to air episodes in this series twice a month, every other week, alternating with our mental health series which is also coming out twice a month. Before we get to the interview, a couple of announcements. If you have been enjoying reading your copy of Sharon's new book, Real Life, we'd love to hear from you. One of the ways that you can support your favorite authors is a good old-fashioned review. If you have a few minutes to head over to Wherever you bought your book from, Amazon is great, and sharing your thoughts about how you like the book. It does have a pretty big impact on the book, and in particular, people who are maybe new to Sharon as an author and haven't read her work before. 
So we're always grateful for your support, and that's an easy way for you to support Sharon and this new book. I'd also like to mention our mental health series, in case you haven't checked it out. This is something that was inspired out of Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May in the United States. And this series is focusing on both destigmatizing, but also educating folks on mental health. Part of it is the application of many of the tools from spiritual practice, whether you're a meditator or a yogi or other contemplative practices. So it's looking at how those elements can support our mental health whether it's for ourselves or our family members or our community. So it's an important topic and one that, that we could all benefit from. So please check it out if you have not already. Let's go ahead and get to today's recording, Courtney Martin and Sharon Salzberg. Welcome back to The Summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm so pleased to welcome Courtney Martin for a conversation about expansion and the challenges and rewards of working for the common good. Courtney is the author of four books, most recently Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School, and a popular newsletter called Examine Family. She's also the co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, Fresh Speakers, and the Bay Area chapter of Integrated Schools, as well as the storyteller in residence at The Holding Company. She's written frequently for the New York Times, On Being, and other publications. Her literal happy place is in her co-housing community in Oakland, California. Her metaphorical happy place is asking people questions. So we'll turn the tables now. <laughs> I was going to say, how about, how about I ask the questions here? Okay. No, no. <laughs> A quasi-happy place is what I can <laughs> offer, maybe. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll simply be together in, That's in some right. fashion. That's right. So you're a journalist and an activist. And I'm curious how you trace your lineage along those paths. Do you, do you see them as the same vocation in a way, or are they distinct? I love the the word vocation, and I realize... I think for me, the activism doesn't feel like a vocation, but uh, just sort of a way of being in the world. Um, you know, from the time I was a little kid, I've asked inconvenient questions about why things are the way they are and, um, you know, had that beginner's mind kind of like, well, why why is there someone on the street if we have a house and an extra bedroom or, you know, whatever the sort of very obvious questions that that kids ask. Um, so activism just felt sort of built in to, to my personhood. I just sort of came out this way. I did learn how to be an activist from my mom, who is a great community organizer um, and really taught me to trust my own outrage. So my actual muscles for activism, I think, were developed through her modeling and watching her. Um, my writing interestingly also felt sort of like I feel a bit like I was born with the instinct to be a writer I, from the time I was little I loved reading and writing um, and I think actually one of the 
hardest moments in my 20s was feeling like those two paths that you point out, activism and writing, were in conflict. I was um, in my late 20s and I was really interested in writing profiles of people who were activists and thinking about solutions out in the world and social change. And I would often get turned down when I would pitch stories because people would say like, oh, this sounds like advocacy. And I just couldn't figure it out because I thought, why is it advocacy? I mean, if you if you're choosing to pursue reporting on a problem, you also have an opinion about like that this problem needs to be talked about and you have judgment around it. But when you're pursuing reporting on a solution, somehow it becomes advocacy. And so I had the great fortune of being introduced at that time to David Bornstein, who, of course, is a mutual friend of ours and has become a dear friend and mentor for me for so many years. So a decade ago, we founded this thing called the Solutions Journalism Network together along with Tina Rosenberg. And that was such a special moment because I was like sitting in the coffee shop with David, who I considered a bit of a hero at that time. It was our first time meeting, but I had read his book, How to Change the World. And I said, I want to write these stories about amazing people doing interesting work in the world, but I don't think I'm cut out for journalism because all I get is no's. And he said, no, you're exactly what journalism needs. Like they're broken. You're not broken. And um, I'm so grateful to him for that instinct because it really saved me from turning away from journalism. I don't think I ever would have turned away from writing, um, but I think I I just would have thought, you know, that the the problem was me as opposed to the field. And instead, you know, we've been able to collaborate with um, so many other incredible people to try to shift the field to see that differently. Well, it's so interesting because it it brings up the question of what do we imagine detachment is or or a space of being able to describe something without a fixed agenda, you know, as, as decrying it or, or extolling it and, and actually being able to look at it at the same time. We're human beings and we care. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of how it used to be in the academy if you were a religion professor, but you were also a practitioner of Buddhism, let's say, of meditation, or, or you had a faith tradition. Uh, you didn't necessarily hold it as dogma, but it was kind of implied, well, you must be holding it as dogma in some way. You can't look dispassionately at things. Yeah, exactly. And and it's interesting because I feel like, you know, that was tw- 10 years ago that David and I had that conversation. Um, and I think things are, have shifted quite a bit for so many reasons, not just because of the Solutions Journalism Network, but also just, I feel like journalism has had a reckoning and gotten more honest with itself. I mean, you'll still meet old school journalists who will say I'm objective and, you know, any claim to the, to be different is not true, but I think a lot more people, and and I think part of this is also the racial reckoning that's happened has led to a lot of journalists getting more clear that they do come with a point of view and further that journalism has caused a tremendous amount of racial harm by telling a very monolithic story about certain communities and certain um, parts of the world. And, and so I'm really grateful for how that all has shifted. I think, you know, journalism is still searching for its own soul kind of, and what is it, you know, as a profession, how do we educate, um, you know, young journalists and how do we think about, how to find stories and what, what our ethics are. And, you know, especially in an age where truth is so relative for so many people, but um, I'm really grateful that, that journalists, journalism as a field seems as confused as I always thought it should be, you know, it was kind of like, wait, we, you know, there are all these rules that I would question and people would act like it was sort of crazy for me to question them. And now I just feel like, oh, now we're kind of all questioning in a way that feels 
you know, a lot easier. So you identify your literal happy place as your co-housing community. And I wonder if you could just describe briefly how co-housing works. Yes. Um, so I live in a co-housing community in Oakland, California, and we were started 20, I think it's 21 years ago now, um, grew out of a Christian church. There was a group of people who all went to church together, but felt like they really wanted to live their values in a more daily way. And um, so they did the very hard work of finding a plot of land, like taking some homes that already existed and then building some new ones and doing all the legal paperwork. And, you know, unfortunately, the law is set up mostly to help us not share anything as opposed to share things. So when you're doing things like establishing co-housing communities, it's really hard and long process. So I'm so grateful to the founders, many of whom still live here. So fast forward uh, 21 years, and it's now an interfaith community. It's not explicitly Christian. Um, so we have Buddhists, we have um, Jews, we have people who are agnostic like myself. We have folks who were Christian, but, you know, have sort of gone to different parts of Christianity. So there's a lot of evolution. Um, and we each have our own individual home with anything, you know, you'd imagine a typical home having but we also have a shared industrial sized eating area, um, cooking and eating area. And then we share tool shed, bike shed, garden, exercise room, co-working space. Um, and we all sort of like physically or it's dense because we're in Oakland. So it's like a very urban, dense kind of area. Um, and, you know, our house is only I think it's 1,200 square feet at the most. So it's small units, but we're all sort of facing each other. So there's an internal courtyard um, that we all kind of share. So it's a little, the physical experiences, um, I heard someone say architects wanted to think of it as like people standing around at a party and facing each other as opposed to, you know, a street where you're all like facing the street. Um, and we are intergenerational. The youngest member is uh, two and the oldest is 83, an 83-year-old single woman, Louise, who's one of my favorite people and everything in between. And we eat together once a week and once a month on Saturdays, we work together. Like we just kind of wake up in the morning and figure out what needs to be done on the land and all like, you know, weed by side by side or turn the compost or, you know, fix something in someone's house if they need it fixed and that kind of thing. So does everybody vote on a new member or new members? Is that what happens? You know, it's so funny. There is kind of a voting a, there are hardly ever new members because no one ever <laughs> leaves. It's yeah. We have like so many of the founding people are here. Um, we moved here 10 years ago when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter. Um, and then there's been one other family that moved in since then that was new. So it just happens so rarely. And the community's ethos is radical hospitality. So the idea is like, and, and this has been really beautiful for me to learn more about sort of the Christian roots of this was kind of like this very Jesus like idea that like we will feed anyone who comes through the door and we like give everyone the benefit of the doubt that like if they've come here, they're they're decent people, like everyone's worthy of consideration. And it's it's really interesting to find that even really does apply to like who you live with, which seems like such a huge decision. Um, but as it turns out, it's like, I think that part of the lesson of co-housing is that you can, you know, there's about 25 of us. So it's like there are certain people that you would be friends with 
even if you didn't live in co-housing and then there's a bunch of people that you wouldn't, but you can love them and you can feed them. And you know, that that's part of the, the learning is just that like, actually everyone is worthy of living with. And we, and that we all have our challenges that make us worse or better roommates, right. Or worse or better community, or maybe like somewhere on the trajectory of getting those muscles for interdependence and community. So I'm fascinated now with the thought of your daughters growing up in this context, like this is what life looks like, or, you know, this is what life could look like. They obviously realize not everybody lives this way, but they have only lived this way. Yeah. They have only lived this way. And I, I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous gift to me, but it really, for me, that is like the number one motivation is giving them just such a lived experience of interdependence and, um, there is a generation of kids who already grew up in this community. And I know, you know, they're now in their 20s and, you know, going to law school or, um, you know, doing music therapy, like all kinds of interesting jobs. And at moments, you know, as one does in their 20s of wandering and figuring out who they are. And it's it's just such a special thing to have been, you know, in this community and still be of this community where they all know they have, you know, a bunch of aunties who are checking up on them. And um, I think also for sort of identity purposes, it's so cool to have all these different versions of adulthood. Um, you know, you can be like, well, I, I guess I'm not that kind of man, but maybe I'm that kind of man. Like, you know, and I just think that that's so edifying for kids, you know, as much as they all roll their eyes, like not my kids yet, because they're still pretty little, but all the teenagers who grew up here were so embarrassed about the whole thing. And then they all write their college essays on it. And then they all come back and like admit sheepishly that, you know, it was a really special way to grow up. So it's, it's fun to watch that trajectory. And I can see it happening pretty soon with my oldest daughter is nine. And she's actually quite introverted. So it is a bit of a struggle for her at times. Um, but I can also tell that she's like very proud of being from here and just feels, you know, incredibly at home here. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's reminding me in some, in some strange way of how some people in New York described their life after the beginning of the pandemic, where somebody said to me, you know, I've lived in this apartment for 12 years. I never even knew my neighbor's names, but now we, all know one another's names and phone numbers and we check up on one another and we've kind of discovered one another in a whole other way. And so sort of doing that without great adversity. Yes. Yeah. Well, and in fact that it was so funny because we basically had the opposite experience where we were so intimate. And then when COVID happened, we had to figure out how to stay away from each other. It was really challenging for us to be like, wait, what? What? How do, And how do we really protect the most vulnerable in our community? And how do we have a shared understanding of what this pandemic is and what safety precautions we could have? And so, and what, how are we a community if we're not eating together? Which of course we didn't do for years, basically. Um, we, we supported each other profoundly in, in various ways that we creatively figured out, but we kind of had the opposite problem. It was really interesting. It's great. So I really want to talk about resilience. So that's a perfect um, lead in, in real life. Uh, I write about resilience and how when we talk about resilience in the face of the difficult circumstances of life, it's usually defined as bouncing back. It's the return after having been lost, resettling after upheaval, repair after disruption. But we're not exactly returning to a status quo that's been frozen, suspended in time 
just waiting for us to get back. Life is more dynamic than that. We've been changed by our journey in the dark, the places we're returning to, the people, the relationships, the hopes, the dreams are ever-changing as well. So I'm curious about how life, as, as you're living it, helps you through that journey in the dark. Hmm. Well, first of all, I love, 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 love how you're framing that because I do experience it as far more dynamic than a lot of the old metaphors we have for resilience. And I think, you know, what could be more timely than that framing you gave? Because so many of us are thinking about in this like, you know, post-ish pandemic moment. I don't know. People around me still have COVID, so I always feel weird <laughs> saying that. But um, that we don't want to go back, right? The, you don't want to go back into your apartment and not know your neighbors. You don't want to pretend that the George, George Floyd protest didn't happen. You don't, you know, and so it's, it, I think we're all sort of trying to, I, I've seen a lot of people who've tried, like unconsciously kind of bounced back in the same way you were, you know, countering that um, definition of resilience and then felt really bad and been like, oh no, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to live the way I did before the pandemic. And I forgot because I was so excited to like not feel shitty <laughs> that I like got on the airplanes and did the things and got super busy and forgot my neighbor's numbers and all the things. So anyway, I do, I feel like this real sense of a lot of people resettling and trying to kind of figure out like, what, what is this new um, way of being that will integrate what the last few years have been and done for so many of us. Um, and in my case, I think, you know, I've tried structurally to choose a life that reinforces interdependence at every turn so that it doesn't have to be some conscious thing or some like thing on my to-do list is to like be inter interdependent, which I feel like is is kind of the way a lot of people live right now in this sort of modern era where it's like, okay, I'm living my life. And then I, oh, I've got to like figure out how to know a neighbor and like put that on a list as opposed to this like organic integrated thing. So for me, the co-housing community does that in a really deep, interesting way. I mean, we have our structured kind of stuff like the common meals I mentioned, but we also just live in such proximity that there's sort of constant exchanges of energy, resources, time. Um, my neighbor, Tom, um, has this like huge, beautiful kale plant that just is the most prolific kale plant I've ever witnessed in my life. And so there's two neighbors, um, both of us who have two kids, so four kids who just like have been eating that we make kale chips, which is like the only vegetable my kids will eat right now, and just constantly making kale chips. And I saw him at Common Meal and I mentioned like, God, this kale plant has like fed these two families so much. And then I got home the other day and he had left like massive bushels of the kale. So we've been eating kale all week. So it's like, just little stuff that that's like that. It's like we didn't create like a kale exchange program that like we had to raise, you know, create a 501c3 for and raise some money from a foundation. You know, it's like it's just the, you know, beautiful abundance of this little piece of land that we work and these people and looking out for each other. So that's that aspect for me. And then, you know, what you, you mentioned my last book, which is about um, choosing to send our white children to this black majority neighborhood public school. And th the journey that's been for me when I realized that like my peers 
in Oakland were not making that choice. And I was kind of confused about what was going on. uh, And that sort of, you know, led to this book. And the community at that school for me is like another profound structural gift of interdependence where I'm not putting on my to-do list that I need to like keep thinking about, you know, the connection between, you know, gardens and access to food and, you know, racial and economic equity. It's like, I volunteer in the garden uh, twice a week with Miss Destiny. And she's this like badass young black woman who's like teaching these kids about the relationship between the earth and structural issues. And so like, I get to learn from her and I get to like, you know, dig for worms. I was there yesterday and this like hilarious kid found a roly poly and named it Gary. And I was like, what kid names an insect Gary? You know, it's just like, these kids are so weird and wonderful. So like that just makes me feel resilient because it's like, I'm just learning from people who aren't like me and contributing what I can. And, um, it just feels like it's so built into the design of my life as opposed to this value that I'm trying to like, you know, create some experience around that's like outside of my real life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think my very favorite question in going into a, an organization or a company to teach is how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to do your job well? And, you know, I can remember kind of um, early-ish pandemic talking to a, a physician who was running a large medical practice in a hospital. And he said, you know, I have a new appreciation for the cleaning staff. Mm. I thought, well, yeah, you know. And it's so interesting because almost always when I ask that question, people kind of go, oh, I just haven't been paying attention. Right. You know, I haven't really noticed Occasionally, it falls totally flat, you know, at which point I, I often say something like, you know, do you, do you commute to work? In which case, are you dependent on a, an engineer and a train or a subway? Or are you working from home? Are you dependent on, you know, a computer network? Are you, right. what, are you, what are you counting on? And or did you eat today? And if you did not grow everything you are eating, where did it come from? Right. You know, somebody produced it, but we don't pay attention very often. That's such a good point. There's such a delusion of independence that the interdependence, you can't get away from interdependence, but if if people aren't looking closely enough, they don't even think about it. And I do think that was a pandemic moment of like when things broke down, all of a sudden people, you know, were aware of it. And also, you know, we came up with this idea of essential workers and it's like, you know, these folks have been doing this work pre-pandemic and and people didn't notice or value or, you know, bang pans for them out the windows, but now we are. So it's like getting back to your idea of resilience, kind of like how do we hold on to that valuing of people of all different kinds who are making our lives possible? Yeah. So you write about walking past Emerson Elementary as a new parent. What did you notice about the school? Yeah, I used to, I I was a pretty anxious, like, I think looking back, maybe I had sort of like some postpartum anxiety or something after my first daughter was born. I was just really hard to get like my body to chill out, felt very physiological and um, which, you know, is partly understandable because you're like trying to keep a human alive for the first time and nursing and your body's healing and all the things. But anyway, I would soothe myself by taking a lot of walks. I would put her in the carrier and just walk around my neighborhood. And I live in such a beautiful neighborhood, just full of like such gorgeous flowers. And I just moved from New York. So it felt like very verdant and amazing. Um, 
And I would always just walk by this school that seemed like a great elementary school, lots of like kids cheering and yelling on the recess yard and, um, and, you know, quite opposite emotionally for me at the time, I was kind of like this anxious new mom and they were just, you know, exuberant. And I looked closer and I realized like there were very few white kids, like, you know, maybe just a few. Um, and I knew the neighborhood was quite mixed. It was gentrifying, um, but it traditional, it was a black neighborhood. And before that it had been kind of an Italian neighborhood. So it's had many, um, lives as neighborhoods do, but it was a quite mixed neighborhood. So I, I was really confused about where the white kids were. Um, and so, you know, as I say, that led me on this journey of a thousand moral miles of kind of wondering like, where are the white kids? And, and then, you know, I started to ask the most beginner mind questions like, wait, what is school for? Like, why, what do we want our kids to experience out of school? And, um, and it really led me to understand that white parents and, you know, I, I think white mothers in particular have kept segregation up in this country for so many years. The peak of, of integration was in 1988, which is when I was eight years old. And ever since then, it's gotten more and more racially segregated, which of course is not because of legal um, issues. It's because of families choosing and figuring out how to like navigate the system um, to keep their kids separate. And um, so, yeah, it's been a, a really challenging the intellectual version of it has been a really challenging journey. The actual like lived experience of it has been quite beautiful. Yeah. When, you know, I hear the phrase, uh, the start of the journey of a thousand moral miles, I think about how many people might kind of see that and think, I don't think so, you know, and, and turn around, but you, you went for it. You actually um, approached that and, and were willing to make that experiment and, so I'm wondering if you have some sense of like why, you know, what in your conditioning, what in your being had you had you kind of go for it? Well, I think it's that same thing I said about being a little girl and seeing things and asking questions. I've I've never lost that part of myself, which you know, I can only guess is a real tribute to my parents for not like squashing that in me. Um and to, you know, all the teachers I've had who have continued to encourage that kind of question asking. Um, and I think, yeah, it's so interesting. What has allowed me to ask that? I think so much of it is, I am not a very fearful person. I, I've noticed like, the friends who were unable to to tolerate thinking about sending their kid to the school, they, they're very, you know, just to be really clear about it, like a lot of progressive white families who are the same ones who would have, you know, a sign in their front yard that says Black Lives Matters and that kind of thing, but then wouldn't be considering the school. And when I would dig into why it felt like they were afraid of a bunch of things um, and their fear was very real. Like I, I, in the sense that like, I don't actually think the things they were afraid of were going to happen, but I could tell they emotionally really felt it. I feel like you would, you would be so wise about this. Um, and I didn't feel that same fear and I don't, I don't really know why that is, um, to be honest. Um, you know, maybe the privilege of having like fairly safe births and, adjusting to parenthood in a way that felt kind of okay and having this interdependent life where 
I already had models for like, you know, that like take kind of takes a village and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I just didn't feel afraid. I felt like I, and I, I felt like the only thing I worried about is I don't want to make a choice that's about me and not, and not about my kids. Like it's me trying to prove something. So that I was a little bit afraid of. Um, but it's, it's so clearly been great for my kids that I don't worry about that anymore. You've also written that um, the gift of adulthood is the freedom to pursue a moral life on your own terms, even if you are white, especially if you're white, and to let your children witness you trying. And mm-hmm. I love that verb choice there, to witness you trying, you know, not to witness you doing it, not to witness you succeeding, but actually just trying. The trying itself is the model. Yes, totally. And that was, you know, part of the experience has been it wasn't the hard part wasn't choosing to send my kids to an integrating school. The hard, interesting part has been actually showing up at the school, um, you know, now for five years and with two different kinds of kids. Cause my daughters are very different people. Um, and, you know, living into that and watching myself in that environment and, you know, what comes up for me and in what ways am I defaulting into kind of a savior, uh, mentality versus like really being in a state of solidarity and you know when is my ego involved when I'm like at a meeting and you know we're discussing something and I kind of have to check myself like is this really keeping the main thing the main thing like whatever I want to say is this really about our kids and making sure all of our kids are thriving or is this about me wanting to like be the parent in the room with the insight or something um so it is trying constantly right and and sometimes trying easier, which I think is one of my, one of my less, um, you know, less sort of automatic paths is to, you know, I would love to try hard at everything. And then it's like, okay, how about just trying easier? How about just showing up and chilling out and like being a parent on the playground and not, you know, always making things into some new committee that needs to be formed or something, you know, so I'm, I'm still learning in all of those regards, but I do, you know, that was, I, as I mentioned, my mom modeled activism for me. And so I guess that's just so ingrained in me that that's, I want the girls to, you know, just see me trying to figure things out collectively as often as possible. And I'm curious, how do your kids let you know that they're witnessing your journey? Mm. You know what, actually I had the best, thing the other day i loved this do you know ross gay's work yes yes i just um recorded a podcast with him oh yeah okay so i'm obsessed with his work i just like love it so much and we were my girls wanted to pretend we were doing a spa thing like a a pretend game of spa which is very sad at our house because a i have never like basically haven't been to spas and don't like them when i have and you know, they've never been to spas. So we were all sort of like making it up as we went along, but they were massaging my calves and we were painting each other's toenails. And then, um, my husband, this was during the midterms, like yelled up, it looks like Raphael Warnock's going to lose. And I was like, Oh no. And then the girls, one of them was like rubbing my calves and she was like, imagine you're in your happy place. Imagine that Raphael Warnock has just won. And then my 
other daughter said, imagine you're in your happy place. Imagine you're on the couch reading Gay Ross. <laughs> and I felt like this is the best summation of who I am. Like I'm political and I'm like passionate and upset about this. And I just want to be on the couch reading Ross Gay is his actual name. But I love that she said Gay Ross. So that's it's moments like those where I'm like, oh, they like <laughs> they're actually really paying attention to what. Um, I care about, which I totally remember doing with my mom, too. You know, she's my mom's always lamenting that I don't remember anything she cooked when I was growing up. I'm like, yeah, because you hate cooking. Like, I I think I just literally blocked it out because I could just tell it wasn't your joy, you know. Um, So I hope they see me both in my passion and my sort of political places, but also in my joy in a big way. That's so great. Would you say something about that joy and... Uh, how it's useful for you in the pursuit of a moral life. Mm, I love that. Um, Well, all the people that, you know, I'm organizing with, I've experienced great joy with, you know, it's like, it has to be all intermingled. And this is something Roske obviously writes so beautifully about, but um, you know, the same crew of women that I'm like figuring out how to agitate. So we have a better enrollment policy in Oakland. That's like less susceptible to white, parents manipulation like those are the moms I want to have a drink with or do a dance party with or just laugh with um a lot and um you know the the other parents at school who you know we're trying to figure out how the heck do we afford this field trip and figure out how to raise money together you know they're ed made me a loaf of bread the other day. And, you know, it's like we're exchanging just like the stuff of life and laughing about our kids and, you know, just kind of expressing our, our joy and exasperation together. So it it all feels so intermingled and interwoven for me. Mm -hmm. How great. So back in 2016, you published a book called the new better off. You were thinking and writing about the American dream and how successive generations have been better off economically than their parents, but how these days that's less and less likely for more and more of us. But you posit a new way of measuring what better off is. What are some of the metrics you were proposing that we measure our lives by? I love that idea, actually, because it's, um, you know, I I think that uh, of the titles of some of the books I've written, like Real Happiness, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was sort of funny, you know, that people uh, challenged that in the way that they did as though I was dismissing all the happiness that they had uh, rather than pointing out, well, you know, it's so transitory sometimes. Right. And we sacrifice so much for it. Maybe there's another kind of happiness or another ways of being happy that we can find sustaining. Yes. Yes, Totally. Um, yeah, it's so funny because that book was published right before Trump got elected. <laughs> and I feel like it just like disappeared almost. And and recently I've been seeing a lot of books and people talking about what I was trying to talk about in that book, which was just the, you know, the American dream was kind of bullshit always, but now it was like really bullshit. Um, so it's it's a little bit gratifying to be like, I did think about a lot of these things right before the entire country had like to look itself in the face and realize we'd elected this dude. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like the older I get, the more clear I feel that 
you know, the vast majority of the story we tell about what matters in life or what makes us happy or what makes us feel successful is just not true at all, at least for me. And so um, I just keep coming back to these relationships that bring me joy and push me and give me meaning and, um, you know, my own sense of being useful and knowing what my gifts are and like really channeling them towards means that matter to me, whether that's making great art or, you know, helping be a part of important activism. Um, and, and money, my God, like it's, it's so clear to me that there is enough money and there's too much money and that the pursuit of that can just be so disfiguring for people and so confusing for people. Um, so yeah, all of that feels really clear to me now. Um, and I think, you know, being a mother, it's just hard to imagine that we can all stay this confused about what matters when you have small children around. Cause it's just, they, they're just so miraculous in the way that they're like trying to figure out the world and the questions they ask and, um, the things that matter to them, you know, it's like the more I follow their lead, the more, you know, affirmed I feel in all these things that I've been trying to kind of unlearn about what success is. And um, it's just, it is really sad to me that so many of us spend so many years chasing after this stuff. And like, you know, I mean, maybe the beauty of the midlife crisis is that a lot of people in midlife at least ask these questions, but I wish we could ask them sooner and not waste so much time chasing after some version of success that we think is going to make us feel finally sort of permanently worthy and good. And it's just like, no, it just, you. it's, I think worthiness is just like a, a lifetime experience of, you know, the pursuit of feeling worthy of, of a community of relation, loving relationships of, you know, your calling, like, that's just, you, you spend a whole lifetime wanting to feel worthy and maybe feeling more or less worthy at different moments and trying to like learn how to hold that more gracefully. Well, I think that it's one of the consequences of, um, society or many societies, different cultures, uh, telling a very strong story. There's a strong narrative about where happiness is and what makes one worthy yeah. as a human being of being alive. And we absorb those stories so much and um, don't even realize that the world is telling a story to us about us and that we are believing it and that we need to be able to stand a little bit apart from it and question it, which, you know, you did uh, when you entered co-housing as a community, when you, went to that school, you know, as a family. And it's like a different story of life mm -hmm. that you're willing to hear and, and look at, which has us look at our own story. Yeah, totally. And I do think I'm obsessed with that, the phrase, like people like me do things like this. I think we all need to see someone else doing stuff. And it's like the people who created this community Show, showed me, I mean, I was nervous and I knew like, this is pretty weird. And a lot of people that I would tell, like, we were going to do this, they'd be like, are you sure that's a good idea? Um, but I had these people that I was like, they've been doing it and I'm watching them do it. And it seems pretty cool. Um, there was a woman who tragically passed away while I was writing my book, but who I met, who lived in LA and founded, co-founded Integrated Schools, this incredible national organization. And uh, weirdly, her name was also Courtney. 
And when I was trying to figure out where to send Maya, my older daughter, to school, I got on the phone with her and I was like, oh, this woman's great. Like she's this she's a white mom, you know, choosing to send her kid to a Latinx majority school that is, you know, one out of 10 on greatschools.org, her neighborhood school. People like me do things like this. Like I can do this, you know, so I'm that's part of why I wrote the book. Um, despite having lots of trepidation about how it would be received, because I felt like it, there's just such power in modeling that different story for people. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, we have great imagination, but on the other hand, we, we have a pretty anemic imagination when it comes to like different ways to live. We sort of get too busy and just sort of go like, what's the what's the next thing I need to do just like everybody else instead of looking for those models that might be slightly different, but actually a better fit for our values. That's great. I wonder if part of it is also um, that we tend to live in these little units, you know, and that not yeah. many people live in multi-generational uh, housing, you know, over many generations. And if we see, you know, our parents or grandparents and our children do, it's kind of more distant and occasional and, um, you know, we don't have that lived feeling of, oh, this is what it's like when you grow older, you know, yeah. and, and you, you get joy from different things, maybe. Yes. And helps with the fear, don't you think? Because I think, like, if you're just talking to other moms who are about to send their kids to kindergarten, there's just a lot of fear, right? But if I'm also talking to 83-year-old Louise and 55-year-old Cheryl and and everyone's got their own shit going on that's very specific to like their stage of life and I'm kind of like, oh, like this kindergarten thing is like important, but also like there's a million other things, you know, that this is just one step. And it's for me that intergenerational interaction gives such perspective and takes this sort of intensity and fear out of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if your thinking has evolved about any of these metrics, you know, or strengthened since the pandemic began. Mm. Um, I think I, I, the book, when I wrote The New Better Off, there was a lot of stuff about the local, but I think of that even more intensely now, you know, it was like, my daughters and I became very enraptured by this loquat tree at the end of our block. I didn't even know what loquats were before the pandemic. And then my friend who's a California native told me those are loquats. And like we planted loquat seeds and we made loquat drinks and we like would visit this tree every day. And it just became this like huge part of our lives. And I think the pandemic slowed me down enough and, you know, I stopped traveling I, you know, just like was in this like very small physical location um, and just got such a tremendous amount of joy from it. And I don't think that's left me, even though I don't have as much time as I did. Um, I'm, I'm still not traveling as much as I did before the pandemic, but I so I don't have as much time, but I still have this felt sense of like a deep relationship with my physical location and. Um, I, I'm still drawing a lot more. I drew a lot during the pandemic with my kids. So we would draw the loquat tree and, and I'm still like drawing a lot and just looking closer. Um, so I think just that sense of, you know, maybe it would be called mindfulness, but like a real attention to this piece of land, both like the co-housing community itself, but even just like the block that we live on 
And, um, you know, that even that is like a whole world to be fascinated by and learn about. And um, I think I'm just realizing like that the voraciousness for like this big global, complicated, busy life. Um, I, you know, I had a hunch when I wrote that book that that was not the, the path for me, but I think even more so now I'm just sort of like aware of how much time and love and attention and care each relationship takes, which includes both like relationships between people, but also relationships to a land, the land itself, relationships to a city, relationships to, um, you know, your stuff, like that it's all actually more time consuming than we pretended it was when we're just like churning through everything. I really relate to that. I have not been on an airplane in uh, over three years now. Wow. And you used to travel a lot. Travel incessantly. Wow. Incessantly. And, and it's funny because um, the, the scope or the arc of this book, Real Life, is about moving from contraction and, you know, being trapped or feeling trapped to a world of expansion and connection and openness. And um, some of that greatest expansiveness came when my world got smaller. Yes in terms of travel and as you say, global everything. And, uh, you know, and I realized how much time was actually spent not only in the actual travel, but who's going to pick me up at the airport and where am I going to stay? And where's going to, you know, and so it was all the planning and, uh, things that had to be done around the travel that just took up all this time and space. And it's hard to even notice where you are after a while. Yes. Yeah. You're planning on getting to the next place. And it's, it's just remarkable at the sort of, physical size of your of your domain is not the point right you know it's really an inner state yes and it's like a deepening instead of a broadening and and that it's constantly changing like the 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 small place is constantly changing you actually don't have to change locations because it's like oh no the loquat tree got trimmed what does that mean about who trimmed it? Why did they trim it? Is it going to have more fruit? You know, it's like we could get really invested in these things and the, the changes just in our little place if we pay enough attention. Yeah, that's great. And you've written about the reductive seduction of other people's problems. What is that and how does it stymie our attempts to work for the common good? I should say that working for the common good implies a level of connection that I think is like the essence of expansion, mm. you know, yes. even in before the pandemic, when people would talk about an epidemic of loneliness and I used to read about, you know, different clinical conditions and how social connection could be a force for healing. I, I knew, I just felt strongly that it couldn't just be like, I only have three friends. I need 18, you know, yes. that it was some sense of being connected, of belonging. Yes. to a larger sphere, even if the immediate world was your world. Yes. And, and I think gets back to my structural point, because I think we act like the antidote to loneliness is some sort of formula, like old men need seven more friends, like you said. But it's like, if you have the seven more friends, then you have to call them and you have to figure out how to be around them. And like, it's very complicated to like, have that kind of you know, onus on you to create that life versus if you live in a community with a bunch of people, 
it's, you know, sometimes you feel emotionally lonely because you're just feeling alienated and whatever's going on. But, you know, you just walk outside to like get the mail and you have that little jolt of energy with someone that you didn't have to like create. So I wish we would talk more about that with all the loneliness conversation because I fear we're like doubling down on like the independent person has to like be less lonely. It's like, no, that's like, there's certain behaviors, of course, that help people be less lonely. And and as we know, men are socialized to like not invest as much in friendship. And like, I get all of that, but I'm just like, oh, we got to figure out structural solutions for this stuff. Um, the reductive seduction of other people's problems was this piece I wrote that, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience where I didn't think much of it. And then it's just like, has followed me ever since. And I love the piece. So I'm like thrilled about that. But I was very surprised, which is I was just trying to point out that in the sort of entrepreneurial activist circles that I was a part of, especially in sort of like the elite Western US white context, there's a lot of emphasis put on like brilliant innovators figuring out the solutions to other people's problems, like going, you know, we're going to go to East Africa and figure out education, or we're going to go to South America and figure out climate change. And that I thought part of what was motivating that was that problems look easier to solve when you don't actually understand them super well. And when you don't have an intimate experience of them. Um, So the lead of that piece is actually, I tried to flip it on its head and have like a Ugandan teenager who was like, the U.S. has such terrible gun problems. Like, we should go over there. I have an idea. We're going to fix it quickly, you know, and it, and in this scenario, the Ugandan kid would be rewarded and told like, you're amazing. You're like going to go to America and brave their problems. And let's shower you with like money and fellowships, you know, and we all know how intractable and terrible the gun problem is here. Right. And it's not simple. Um, So I, I, I've really appreciated a lot of global activists have pointed to that piece and said that it felt like, Oh, finally, some American like explains how we feel about this thing. So yeah, it was really at the intersection of my interest in, um, you know, the power of, of solutions and social change and storytelling, but also that the dark side of it, for me was that too often we can sort of fall in love with our own, I, you know, sense that we have the innovation that's going to solve everything instead of acknowledging the true complexity and also really equipping proximate folks who have like experienced this thing um, to come up with the solutions or, you know, we can partner, but that there was really a lot of wisdom in the proximate. Yeah. You used the phrase earlier, uh, savior, the savior mentality. Yeah. You know, and there it is. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, it reminded me in a funny way of um, an illustration I use a lot to try to describe interdependence, uh, which is really also what you're talking about, you know, rather than uh, I, the independent, perfect person. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you way down there with the, you know, the terrible life situation, and I'm going to fix it. And it's just a simple story that actually happened where I was uh, riding in a car with a friend and uh, she was driving and we got caught in terrible, horrible, awful traffic and complained bitterly about it the whole time. And then my friend looked at me and said, well, we're the traffic too, you know? (laughs) And I thought, Oh, that's right. They're probably complaining about us. And it was almost like before, you know, when they were the problem, it was like, Oh, we're the center of the universe and you folks are in my way. You know, why don't you speed up a little bit? And the, that sense of centrality and marginalization just dropped out. Yes. Like we're all the traffic. 
and we've got a problem. Yes. You know, which is actually a more realistic way of working on the problem because it's the truth of things. Yes, it really is. And it's so hard to to get outside of your centrality, right? It's just like profoundly challenging. I mean, I think this is why everyone's so obsessed with psychedelics right now. It's like drugs do that and you know, not a lot of, and you know, for some people, religious experiences do that. Um, but I think that is something we, we crave. And yet it's like so challenging to get ourselves to do that. I mean, I feel, especially as a public person who writes about myself, I'm like so sick of myself so much of the time. I'm like, oh, you're really like writing this story again, like cliff notes, interdependence, community, you know, like I write the same book over and over again, basically, which I'm sure you have some feelings of this where it's just like, but you know, on the other hand, it's just like, I only live in this body with looking at peering out through these eyes, this set of experiences. Um, so this is kind of what I have to offer, you know, but you know, I do think the other thing besides drugs and religious experiences, art, right. I mean, that's part of why I love an incredible movie or, um, I went to a really cool show last night, like a jazz, um, instrumentalist kind of thing. And, it's just like, it's so that those experiences help me get out of myself a little bit. So more of that for sure. Yeah. No, I think that's for sure. When I was writing uh, my last book, Real Change, um, and I was talking about hooks and uh, she said to me that she, she didn't like the term uh, social action as, as a term, because she said for some people it might, imply only picketing or protesting or marching or something like that. And she said to me, what about art? Hmm. You know, and there it is, you know, it's, it's a huge expression of social action. Yeah. Because, you know, the courage that many artists will convey in their creation is what ignites us, you know, in that right. moment it's like, Oh, things can look different. Totally. I just saw it the new Sarah Pauly movie, Women Talking. I watched it with a group of women and we couldn't leave the theater because we were so impacted. And I said to my friends, like, I, Sarah Pauly doesn't have to do anything else the rest of her life. Like, I do have that feeling when I watch like an incredible piece of art that I'm just like, that person's done. Like they, <laughs> I mean, not that you have to prove yourself or like, you know, but I don't know. I'm just kind of like, they have nothing to prove ever again. It's just like so powerful when you see someone make something that's that affecting. So let's just uh, finish the conversation by talking about love. Oh, great. Which is really implicit in this, you know, breaking down boundaries, seeing beyond your limitation, not fixating on yourself and, uh, working for the common good, and it seems to me that love is really at the at the root of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know. I actually, it's interesting because I feel like one of the reasons I wanted to write my book, this last book about um, white parents and school integration, was also because one of the tropes people say is like everyone wants what's best for their kids. So, like, of course white parents are going to strategize out of these failing schools. And what my experience becoming a mother is that I do find it the deepest, most interesting, most powerful love I've ever experienced. And I absolutely 
don't believe that the only way to love my kids is to give them the best of everything. So it really fits with a lot of what we're saying that like loving them means like really getting to know who they uniquely are um, and, you know, putting them in communities and giving them, you know, exposure to opportunities and ideas and social relationships that they can keep bouncing off of. It's not about like perfecting some world for them. That's not love to me. Like love to me is really seeing them um, and reflecting back what I see of them and really listening to the stuff that they are drawn to. Um, You know, I think it's like far more important that I have like art supplies lying around than that I like made sure my kid got into the perfect elementary school with a perfect art program. Um, so they've taught me so much about love. Um, and you know, all my relationships teach me so much about love. I like, you know, still very close to my parents, um, and navigating their aging has been this, you know, incredible lesson in love. Um, and a partner, you know, I've been together for 14 years. That's really hard and really good. And yeah, I just feel like these, my friendships are such a profound source of love for me and, you know, being accompanied by particularly women, but, you know, I have some good guy friends, but particularly women who, you know, just are so gifted at both seeing me and supporting me, but also pushing me and holding me accountable to my own dreams. And yeah, I just feel so, so lucky surrounded by so much love. That's beautiful. Thank you. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to to say or add or. um. No, I'm just so grateful to be in conversation with you. And I love, I'm, you know, really excited. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm so excited to. And I'm really grateful that you're figuring out, as you said, you know, you haven't gotten on an airplane in three years, that there are other ways to teach and doing that in a way that like you take care of yourself and fall in love with this you know, deeper relationship with your local, but still get to teach so many people because you're such a special teacher. So thank you. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Well, it's been amazing as always to to be with you. And I do feel, you know, I've adapted to the Zoom world. I feel like I'm really with people <laughs> yes. when I'm conversing with them. Um, and to learn more about Courtney's work, visit CourtneyEMarchin.com, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-E. M-A-R-T-I-N.com, her Substack newsletter, which I subscribe to, called Examine Family, or pick up her recent book, Learning in Public, or any of her books for that matter. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. Hey folks, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's work, her virtual offerings, classes, Courses, really all things Sharon. You can visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. <laughs>